Massimo, it is good to see you again. How are you? I am very good. Thank you. So let's do our introductions and then we can get started with our business. Sounds good. Go ahead. Well, I'm Massimo Filucci. I'm the KD Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. And I'm Daniel Kaufman. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. Um, Massimo, today we're going to do something a little different um, and maybe start something that we may do periodically, um, and that is to talk a little bit about uh, the philosophers that have really had a, had a significant inf- influence on us. Um, and the audience should know uh, that we did you know, choose ahead of time. And uh, I don't want them to think we're better than we are at this. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, we are some, somewhat like, you know, like, like uh, an improvisational, uh, you know, comedian or something like that. But yeah, we're not that good. So yeah, yeah. actually, you know, Massimo, several people in blogging heads comments over time have said that these two men were born to talk to each other is what they <laughs> said. So, like, um, I guess an Italian and a Jew is not a boring conversation, right? <laughs> All right, so let's see that, what comes out today. Why don't you start, Massimo, um, with uh, the person you've chosen and talk a little bit about uh, why he has been so important uh, in your own development. Yeah, so when you suggested this this topic, I, I found it intriguing because we, we rarely hear really about people that influence uh, you know, uh, your, your career and in, in, in some respects, obviously, you, sort of your life. Um, I think it might be an interesting thing uh, to talk about um, these, these kinds of people. And, and when you asked me the question, the first one that came to mind was Bertrand Russell. And that's not necessarily because I, let's say, agree particularly with Bertrand Russell's take on this or that or the other. Um, but it literally had a huge influence on me because it was the first philosopher I've ever read. Really? Uh, yeah, and, and I did not read uh, any of his books initially. I mean, eventually I did. Uh, I just picked up his autobiography. And, and here's how it happened. Um, so I was about 15, actually. And uh, so I was in high school. Uh, in high school, by the way, in, in Italy, uh, uh, you have to study three years of philosophy. So it's, ma- it's mandatory, um, you know, history of Western philosophy. But I just studied that. We, de- we hadn't gotten to obviously sort of modern modern philosophy that's in the last year i had just started with you know the pre-socratics and and, and the early greeks um and then one afternoon i remember i was in my father's house my my parents were divorced so i grew up with my grandparents i was in my father's house and uh as usual on a sunday afternoon uh, uh he he was listening to the uh radio live massimo you're freezing a little oh you, you, is, how's your, is your connection all right? I think I'm good, yeah. Okay. Keep, go, keep going. Let's... All right. Let's start from <laughs> yeah. the Sunday afternoon. Yeah. So one afternoon, I remember, on Sunday afternoon, I was in my father's house um, uh, because, you know, my parents divorced when I was a kid and I grew up with my grandparents. So I would see him during the weekend. And, um, and this was during the um, middle of of the, the year, not during the summer. So that means that he was, as usual, listening to a soccer game live on the radio. That tells you pretty much what the time uh, uh, period was, you know, radio, not, not, not streaming on the internet. Right. Um, and I, at the time, I actually did find soccer really, really boring. I don't anymore. In fact, um, this next week, I'm going to see uh, a live soccer game in New York. But at the time, it really was uh, unbearable for me. So I didn't have anything better to do for that hour and a half or so. So I started browsing uh, my father's library. Now, my father wasn't exactly 
uh, sort of an intellectual kind of person. Uh, he was very smart, but it was not an intellectual kind of person. So he had one of these general collections of, you know, anonymous collections of books. They all look the same, you know, the, the same cover and all yeah, that, and yeah, all the yeah. classics and that sort of stuff, which I'm pretty sure he never read. Well, <laughs> turns out one of these was Bertrand Russell's autobiography, and which was pretty thick. Um, and I vaguely heard of the name and I just picked it up and I started reading it. And, uh, you know, I had nothing better to do. And boy, did I get engrossed in these things. So this was fascinating stuff. I mean, this, this was a guy who um, had done uh, not only philosophy, but political activism. He had been, uh, you know, imprisoned several times for his, uh, you know, uh, anti-war activism. First time in war, during World War One, and then eventually later on, all the way on, uh, uh, to, the, to the point of, to the time of the Vietnam War. Um, one of the anecdotes that he recalls in the autobiography, which made a huge impression on me at the time, was that uh, he was arrested uh, for protesting England's entry, uh, you know, the UK's entry in, in, uh, in the, uh, World War One, And so he was, you know, brought to, to the jail and uh, the guy at the, at the entrance, uh, you know, that was taking down basically the, the biographical data, asked him for his name and you know, his profession and, of course, his religion. And Bertrand Russell's okay. answer was agnostic. Uh, and the guy looked puzzled, looked up, and then looked down, and then he said, "Oh, what the hell? Everybody believes in the same God." <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I thought that was hilarious. And so, um, so one thing after another, you know, I started reading this thing. I finished the whole book in in a few days. You know, I borrowed it from my father, and I finished it. And I was really engrossed. And and then that immediately brought me to pick up random other books by Bertrand Russell. Uh, one of which, of course, was uh, why I'm not a Christian, which is the, the trans transcript of a conversation he had on BBC um, about Christianity and agnosticism and atheism with uh, the then uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. And so I read the thing, and again, it's like, wow, this, this is a guy who actually thinks pretty much, but this, this I should also qualify, you know, uh, clarify that that at the time, this, this was the time where I was making my uh, fairly rapid transition from uh, being a Catholic uh, to an agnostic first and then and then downright atheist. So so this kind of struck a chord with me. And so this was the first time where I encountered an intellectual, a philosopher in particular, who was writing about a very interesting life. You know, the guy got married several times. Um, he, he, he was, in fact, um, hired at one point by City College in New York, where I work. Yeah, uh, that's right. Now. And that led to a huge controversy because at the time he had just published uh, his book on, on marriage and morals, uh, which was very controversial. This was the 1930s, um, you know, right before World War II, so in late 1930s, if not early 40s. Um, and uh, uh, apparently a, a woman who, whose daughter was going to City College, but interestingly, who was not actually taking Russell's course, uh, basically filed a lawsuit saying that, you know, uh, claiming that Russell was not competent to teach moral philosophy because of what of that oh book. I know, right? Um, and oh, my God. <laughs> even though the university obviously didn't agree, a New York judge did. And so he forced City College to fire Bertrand Russell um, on grounds that, you know, at the time he was only the most famous philosopher alive and on the grounds that he was not, in fact, competent to teach moral philosophy. Not only that, but World War II had started in the meantime. He found himself, he couldn't go back to England, so he found himself stranded in the United States. Nobody else will hire 
hire him at the time. He was running out of money. I, at some point, I think Harvard eventually basically gave him a temporary job until the end of, of World War II, and he was able to go home. So it was a really fascinating story. So that really got me. So this was the time also, remember, you know, not only I was a teenager, but this was the time when I was actually starting to, to study philosophy. And, and fortunately for me, uh, my high school teacher in philosophy was brilliant, and she was she was an incredible uh, teacher. So she really made made the the, the the topic come alive and and made a you know lifelong impression on me. Uh, even though I had already decided at the time to pursue a, a career as a scientist, which I eventually did. You know, I became a biologist before moving professionally into philosophy. Um, but so all this came together at the same time. This is the time where I was beginning to study philosophy. I had this wonderful teacher. Um, I was moving from Catholicism to, to agnosticism and then atheism. And then this guy, you know, this Bertrand Russell guy comes up and, and shows me the philosophy is much more than, uh, than, than just, you know, sort of arid and very difficult to understand books. So, so that was a major, you know, literally life changing, uh, influence in that sense. It didn't, um, affect my life in the sense that I, uh, you know, switched a career to philosophy, not not immediately, right, right, right. Um, but but it did have this it did have this long lasting effect, which I also in part credit anyway for uh, eventually uh, my my career switch much later in my life. But it sort of in, it really um, uh, laid the ground for sort of a love of philosophy since I was a teenager, and then never never left me. And then I eventually read a number of other things by Russell. Uh, I um, significantly later sort of I appreciate. I appreciated the, the effort that he made with, with Whitehead for uh, in, in their Principia Mathematica to uh, try to put mathematics on, on uh, logical foundations, you know, and, and, and of course that, 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 that uh, attempt failed uh, spectacularly, uh, you know, even though, even though uh, Principia Mathematica is one of the most influential books of the 20th century, probably, arguably, but it failed spectacularly. It failed uh, because it just couldn't be done. It's not that they were not smart enough. It just couldn't be done. And, you know, Godel um, uh, famously demonstrated, in fact, about that time, uh, with his incompleteness theorems, that what Russell and White were trying to do could not be done. Uh, that that entire program of sort of logicizing mathematics simply cannot be done. Um, to me, that is uh, it is an incredible um, example in in the in, in history of ideas. How you can pursue for for you know many many years. Very very smart people can pursue for many many years a particular project, which then it turns out to be entirely sort of misguided, essentially, not not through any fault of their own. And Russell, as soon as, of course, he saw Godel's uh, uh, papers uh, coming coming out, he said, oh, that's it, that, we're done, that, that's why it didn't work, <laughs> you know, uh, so to, to his credit. But he wrote also, you know, uh, Problems of Philosophy, which is a very short book about what he thinks sort of philosophy should uh, or, or should not uh, deal with. And, you know, and, uh, uh, and he actually was one of the very, very, very first modern philosophers to talk about, contemporary philosophers to talk about uh, philosophy in sort of scientific terms. Today, I actually would have almost considered them, uh, considered them scientific terms, uh, which in my book is not exactly a compliment. Um, and, then, and then many, many years later, like a couple of years ago, I read this wonderful uh, graphic novel. I don't know if you if you're familiar with it. If you if you've seen it, it's called Logic Comics. No. And, oh, it's, you should check it out. Okay. Uh, so Logic Comics is is the history of uh, of the of logic basically throughout the 20th century, 
And it's written by uh, a couple of philosophers, uh, uh, Greek philosophers, and together with, with an artist who made it into a comic book. And the main character, of course, is Bertrand Russell. That's amazing. Um, and, and it's, you know, so they, they talk about uh, uh, Russell and Whitehead. They talked about Godel. They talk about, you know, the relationship between mathematics and logic. And it's so well done. It's, it's very accurate in terms of sort of from a technical perspective. Of course, it doesn't get into uh, any of the, of the you know, deep details because it's, it's a comic book, really. Right. Um, but it was spectacularly successful when it came out a few years ago. Uh, and, you know, an example of something that very few people probably would, would have expected, you know, a, a comic book about philosophy that actually becomes successful. Um, but that sort of brought back all these memories because I saw Birdie there with, with you know, in comic book format and, uh, you know, talking about his problems. And also he had, you know, he was very a very interesting person uh, um, not, not just as an intellectual, right? So I mentioned that he, he got married several times um, and he had some really rocky relationships. Some of them, uh, you know, quite fair, uh, it was his, his own fault. Um, but at the same time, he also struggled with depression. He, he, he contemplated suicide. Apparently there was a history of that in his family. So the guy was definitely not, you know, sort of a normal person. In fact, in, in the Logic Comics uh, book, uh, story, they, one of the side uh, side stories is this exploration of the relationship between genius and, and suicide and you know, depression and suicide. As it turns out, a lot of logicians and mathematicians apparently have gotten back, you know, pretty close to that to that uh, precipice. So so he was a you know, spectacular, you know, larger than life uh, uh, figure. And um, and he's still a, a large, very, very large influence. I mean, again, not, not in the sense that I necessarily do anything in my professional career that has actually has to do directly with Bertrand Russell. But, but one of my uh, prized possessions, for instance, which I cannot show you to you uh, today because it's in my other office at City College, I'm at the Graduate Center today, um, is a, a autographed photo uh, by Bertrand Russell, um, and, um, and which I have on my, on my wall. And then one of my friends uh, a couple of years ago for my 50th birthday gave me a uh, first edition autographed version uh, you know, uh, edition of the of the Easter Western philosophy, um, which again, it's another interesting example. I mean, if you read that book for many many years, that was the book to go. If That's you right. Anything That's about right. Western philosophy, right? But it's very opinionated. It's, it's very not, flawed as a history. It's, yeah, it's yeah. definitely flawed. No, no, no question about it. But it's very opinionated. It's funny. It's 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 engaging. Uh, yes, you have to realize that you know Birdie there does give his opinions, his own opinions about certain things, which are definitely not sort of an objective or you know detached view of certain things. But boy, does it does that get get you into the readings? And you really want to know, you know, what he thinks about this or that or the other. And then of course you you know you mature and you read other things. You say, well, actually he probably was wrong about you know his assessment of I don't know the existentialist, for instance, or something like that. Um, but for many years, that was the book to go, and and uh, and it you know things have not improved very much in in the in the area of sort of Eastern and Western philosophy. Now you can have a lot of more lot more resources that are a lot more anthologies and all the, all sorts of stuff. But uh, when I was young, that was that was the way to go, and um, and it made a huge impact, huge influence on on me from that perspective. So that's pretty much the the, the, the basic story about about uh, Bertrand Russell. Um, I still consider him today one of my top, you know, three or four uh, philosophers uh, in terms of influence. Maybe maybe we'll get to some of the other ones uh, in in the uh, 
future episodes of this yeah. occasional series. So, yeah. Yeah. so what, what was it, before we go to your, I want to ask you about your, your pick for the day, but um, do, you have any, do you have any thoughts about Russell? What, yeah, this? so, so um, and I also want to ask you a few things about, about what you said. Um, um, you know, <laughs> unlike you, when I was 15, <laughs> I wasn't doing such intellectual things. Um, <laughs> My my, when I was fifteen, my life was much more like a John Hughes movie than uh, than like a, a an intellectual uh, experience. And of course, American high schools, even back when I was in high school, did not require you to take three years of philosophy. I um, think. Um, um, so I didn't encounter Bertrand Russell. I want to say not even until graduate school, because you know you can go through an undergraduate education, yeah, even quite a good one. And yeah. not encounter all that much 20th century philosophy. Right. I did encounter some, but the, the, the 20th century philosophy I encountered in college was very spotty. I had a very solid education in ancient and modern. Um, the contemporary it really depended on what sort of elective courses you took. So, you know, I took a course in epistemology, and so I got some, you know, I got Quine's naturalized epistemology, and I got, uh, you know, other, other things, but I didn't, didn't get Russell. So I really think it's not until graduate school, but it's funny, um, unlike your experience, Russell was presented to me, he was presented as someone who represented what had already become a very dated conception of analytic philosophy. Right. Um, and I think I was probably, that, that he represented um, the, 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 the sort of terminus of a certain way of thinking about philosophy that people like Wittgenstein showed was impossible, right? right. Um, and that who, who, who is, of course, uh, you know, was well, one well, of Russell's students. Well, right. that that's I mean, the story about Russell and Wittgenstein's relationship is fascinating and has been written about, and I think is in that Derek Jarman film about Wittgenstein, which I don't love, but it does get at the stuff on on Russell. Russell originally was, in a sense, his mentor and brought him in, but then, in a sense, the pupil outgrew the the, the mentor, and it's pretty clear that. It got to the point to where Russell no longer understood Wittgenstein's philosophy, and this created tension. Um, um, you know, on the one hand, as you as you correctly pointed out, Russell could could admit that he was wrong about something, yeah. like he did about the Principia, but he never was able to accept the the, the later Wittgenstein philosophy, which right. rejected the sort of very imp logical empiricist sort of uh, way of doing philosophy that Russell sort of um, um, represented the, the sort of the pinnacle of. Um, um, so well, I did fair. He wasn't the only one rejected that the, the later Wittgenstein. So there, there was yeah, no, 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 absolutely, absolutely. I'm just, yeah, I'm just talking about divide there even still today. Right. So, so, but what happens is, I, I will say this though. Here's where I don't think there's a divide. Um, at least there's no divide, I think, when people say things. Maybe they'd still do them. But um, I think that the kind of logical empiricism that Russell represented is pretty much universally agreed to be dead. Um, at least that's what people say. I think that there are a lot of positivistic <laughs> things going on in philosophy, but that often happens unwittingly. Um, it wasn't just the later Wittgenstein. It was also uh, uh, Quine, Quine also put did a lot of damage to logical empiricism. Sure. Um, and um, it's the sort of the way that it's sort of conceived of, um, of the business of philosophy uh, uh, as well as the substance of it. Um, and so the way I was taught was that, you know, 
you had Russell and then later you know AJ Ayer representing the sort of last gasp of a sort of a 20th century empiricism that then Wittgenstein attacked from the sort of position of ordinary language philosophy analysis right. and that people like Quine attacked from the naturalistic perspective uh, and that by the time they were sort of done, there was really not much left of it. Um, um, the only place where sort of Russell, where I read Russell, where he wasn't presented to me as sort of uh, a dated, a dated uh, uh, guy was um, of course in the atheist circles um, because his why I'm not a Christian is is often cited uh, by people who make arguments uh, who who want to who want to make arguments for atheism. And actually, one of the things I wanted to ask you was um, beyond the sort of sort of comfort and sort of bolstering that it gave you as a young teenager who was transforming from a, from a religious uh, worldview to a atheistic one. Were there specific elements of his critique in why I'm not a Christian that influenced you specifically? Um, in other words, were some are, were some of the reasons that you ceased to be a Christian the same reasons that he sort of talks about in the book? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. Um, yes, to some extent, that's that's that is in fact the case. I mean, what what Russell did in that book, I thought was. Um, well, I didn't think of this at the time, but now I think of it as much more sophisticated and much more, um, uh, you know, much better laid out than you know anything that the so-called new atheists have written over the last. So maybe say years. a little bit about that, just a few. Yeah. So I mean, he, he talks, you know, the, he, he brings up this famous example of the of, that has become known as Russell's tea, uh, tea, uh, teapot, right? So this this idea that well, maybe there is a teapot orbiting the sun at this at this very moment. Uh, but but how do we know, right? Is there any you know is there any way to find that out? And 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 um, this was his way of introducing the, the 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 concept, which I think is very important, that one doesn't have uh, to necessarily be able to prove to disprove a particular notion, because there are certain notions that are not disprovable, uh, either logically disprovable or empirically disprovable, but that that isn't the point. Uh, because if the notion itself doesn't have, you know, it's, it's, it's fanciful, it's out there, and it doesn't have an independent, you know, solid reason or evidence on its own behalf, then you're per perfectly justified in simply not believing it. Um, and not just being agnostic about it, uh, but simply just discard it until, of course, uh, you, you should always be open to a sort of revision of, of your opinions about, about anything. You know, if somebody does, in fact, uh, spot a... a, a a teapot orbiting the sun, then, you know, that's it. Then you got empirical evidence. And that to me, that, that struck me as a very nice um, way of making this very general point that doesn't actually uh, uh, apply only to the question of God. It applies to the question of any of what David Hume would call extraordinary claims, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, he wouldn't call it that, but but Carl, Carl Sagan called them that uh, by sort of rephrasing Hume. He said you know, famously, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, which right. is a rephrasing by Carl Sagan of, uh, of, a, of a concept by David Hume, who famously said that, uh, you know, a reasonable person proportions his, his beliefs to the evidence, right? Um, to me, that was a subtle point 
but by today's standards of the conversation, it's not a conversation, or the shouting match between fundamentalist Christians and New Atheists, this was a subtle point. This was a point that, uh, that perhaps today could be expressed in sort of in, in Bayesian terms, if, you, if you'd like. You know, it's a question of, you know, um, what is rational, how is it, uh, what is the rational way of, of updating your beliefs given the evidence and given previous, uh, you know, uh, uh, and given sort of whatever starting point you may want to give to a particular hypothesis? So when I read that, and you know, I couldn't really, I mean, I appreciate immediately the metaphor and I appreciate the point. I, it took me then eventually years sort of to put it into the proper context. You know, then later on I learned about Bayesianism. Later on I learned about Hume. Uh, you know, I hadn't read Hume yet. Right. Um, so all of that made perfect sense. Um, you also had, you know, remember that book is also about Christianity specifically. It's not, it's not about theism in general, right? Or gods, you know, concepts of gods in general. So there was a lot of talk uh, there back and forth about specific aspects of, of sort of Christian um, uh, belief, uh, particularly, you know, the the, the 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 things about the transubstantiation, you know, this, this idea that. Uh, Christians are literally drinking the the blood of Christ and eating the the, the uh, flesh of Christ, and not just sort of things that stand in for it uh, during a ceremony. Um, and and so Russell there goes again very gently, I think, very very nicely by contemporary standards, by by, by the standards of contemporary debates. But he goes there and basically says, you know, he doesn't say it, but he basically says, look, this is nonsense. I mean, I, I, how do you how do you believe this kind of thing? This this sort of thing goes entirely against anything that we know, not only about physics, but any reasonable metaphysics you, you may want to build on the basis of, you know, sort of rational discourse. You know, this is clearly made up. This is clearly something that if you want to rephrase it in terms of an analogy, in terms of sort of a, uh, a metaphor, fine, then go ahead and do it. But if you really expect people to take this as is, um, you know, uh, at face value, then it's just not even in the ballpark of, of reasonable ideas. And um, this was pretty much what was going on in my mind at the time. I mean, I had just actually a few years earlier done uh, First Communion, um, because which is one of the you know, sacraments in, in the Catholic um, uh, sort of sequence of things. Uh, and I did it later than normally, than it's normally done because I had to wait for my brother to be old enough. And then we were both uh, gearing up, my brother and I, for uh, confirmation, which is the next big thing. And that is essentially when I said to my parents, I said, no, I'm not going to do this. And some of the reasons that I was trying to articulate where I found out very much along the lines of what Burton Russell actually had written. So when I found the book, I said, aha, this is exactly one thing. Of course, this is much better expressed. This is much better, much more clear than than the way I could have expressed it. But but he, had, he gave, uh, you know, nice form and, and, and a lot of substance to the sort of doubts and, and general uh, problems that I had. Did he get, you know, it's been a while since I read the book, um, and maybe maybe you'll remember better than I do. Did he also criticize Christianity not in terms of the sort of the various belief claims that, that it required a person to accept, but in terms of its role, its historical role, its social role, did he, did he, did, did, in other words, did, did he criticize it along the lines of being a bad actor? Right. Um, um, yeah, there, I think there was something like that. I honestly should go back actually and reread the thing because I haven't read it in, in a number of years. But yes, I do remember some kind of something about sort of essentially what we, we, we would call today a social commentary um, of, uh, you know, about the history of Christianity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that, of course, applies to, you know, pretty much any ideology, not just religious. 
Um, and it certainly doesn't apply even within religions. It doesn't apply just to Christianity. Um, but it is one of those. I mean, Russell is famous for having said um, similar things uh, also in, in, in different uh, in different outlets yeah. uh, to the, you know, to, he famously was asked um, at some point, you know, what, what he would do uh, if he actually died and, you know, and, and, and met God. And, and he's, the first, his first reaction was something on the lines, and I'm paraphrasing here, it was something on the line, well, you know, you, you, you didn't give me enough evidence. <laughs> you know, it's, it's your fault. I mean, you gave me, you gave me reason. Yeah. And I had absolutely no reason to believe in you. So what, what do you want now? You know, I used my, my brain the way, you, you know, what you gave me. So the reason, here's the reason I asked that. You know, I, I think that a lot of times atheists who want to press the case, who want to make the case, oftentimes conceptualize religion really very much as evangelicals do. That is, it's very heavily being about belief and especially about belief in, in supernaturalist and other sorts of claims. But I, I suspect that that is not how or why most people belong to the religions that they belong to. I'll just give you an example. Um, I just, uh, other than my own case, this is not the reason why I, participate in my religious community. Um, it's not because I believe a bunch of supernaturalist claims. Um, but I was speaking to a woman, uh, a professor at, at my university who, uh, who's a professor of religious studies and her specialty is the, uh, intertestamental period. And, um, she just recently converted from Roman Catholicism to Eastern or Eastern Orthodoxy. Oh, wow. And I talked to her about it and it was not for theological reasons, and it had nothing to do with belief. As a matter of fact, she probably said she probably couldn't even tell me what all the theological differences was. She did it for reasons to do with community and the, litur- the liturgy and all sorts of other what we would call more social dimensions. And that's why I asked you whether a part of Russell's critique and maybe also whether a part of your own is that you don't like the social effect that – religions have because that seems a more relevant critique to yeah. the reasons why most people participate in these communities as opposed to putting evangelicals who have a very belief heavy conception of religion aside right no i think that's a that's a good point i mean at the time uh my abandonment of religion was was really a question of simply not being able to square uh the notions that were that i was taught or the notions that that you know priests and and uh, and, uh, and fellow co-religionists were were advancing. Now, the extent to which people actually do believe that, or the extent to which those notions, you know, the metaphysical notions, um, uh, are actually the ones that keep people in, a, in in into a religion. I think you're right. They're they're far less important than. Um, yeah, I don't want. I wouldn't want to dismiss them entirely because, I mean, I I know plenty of people who do believe, you know, in transubstantiation, for instance, or something like that, and take it as an article of faith, and they're not necessarily evangelical. But but I think you're right. There is a large component there, a so, sociological component there, um, and that component is really of um, interest for uh, you know for sociological studies. But coming at it from a philosophical perspective, I was really interested in in sort of the arguments. Which, by the way, was the way in which the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury was, in fact, defending yeah, yeah. Russell, uh, his particular theology. I mean, the guy, the guy is a theologian, and so he was, he was doing apologetics. Yeah. 
And to me, the apologetics just didn't. didn't yeah, the apologetics were have never impressed me. Um, no. um, okay. So um, now, what about the the problems of philosophy? So you then talked about how then later, as a when you that Russell was partly influential in getting you into philo- to change to philosophy from science. Are there any specific elements of Russell's philosophy that you've carried with you into your work in philosophy, or is it really just he motivated you as a figure, as a person, to get into philosophy. No, it, 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 so uh, it turns out that when I read the, the problems of philosophy, I was very excited, and I, you know, I, and I, it, uh, I thought about it for a while, and then I said, "Well, wait a minute. But to me, philosophy is quite different from what Russell is talking about here, and uh, or at least it's what what Russell is talking about here is a is a it's a portion of, or it's a small portion, probably." Uh, what I think of as as philosophy. So in that sense, there was almost an immediate reaction, you know, sort of rejection of his actual substance. I think you're right that, um, you know, I'm not so sure that uh, that that kind of analytical philosophy is that. Uh, I see plenty of colleagues around here who think that it's very much alive and, kick, and kicking. But at the same time, it was certainly uh, immediately circumscribed and it's, it's immediately uh, sort of self um uh, self, almost a self-contained kind of approach to philosophy. There's a bunch of other things uh, that are outside of, you know, the logical empiricist approach to philosophy, uh, or the, the, the even the, the strictly analytical approach to philosophy that are interesting and and that was interested in pursuing. Uh, Russell never talked even about philosophy of science, for, for that matter, uh, which is my field, of course, of, of a specific interest. He talked about philosophy as a science. You know, yeah, he talked yeah. famously about about scientific philosophy, and I reject that. I don't think that uh, that uh, philosophy can or should be done in a scientific uh, fashion. He did write a book somewhat relatively late in a, a work in epistemology, right. um, which in which where the issues do overlap to some degree with the philosophy of science issues. But you're right; it's interesting that he never really did work yeah. in the philosophy of science. Yeah. Given who he was, you know. Right. Um, um, so, so most of the influence that he had in terms of philosophy came from the logic, from from his working logic. Um, that that one, I you know, uh, I appreciated and I, and I studied it later on in a you know uh, uh, better level, in more in depth. But no, his his take on uh, analytic philosophy, I think. Um, at the moment, I, I think at this point is is interesting historically. It it it, it tells you a, a great deal of where philosophy as a field was at the beginning of the 20th century during you know, during the first half of the 20th century. Uh, you do want to still today make sense of, of his discussions uh, and discussions uh, with his contemporaries, you know, including people like G. E. Moore and so on and so forth. But um, I wouldn't see today myself actually doing any. Uh, any scholarship in into those areas that Russell identified as the problems of philosophy. So he really influenced. It was Russell, the man, who influenced you. I mean, he, yeah, that's right. He, he he influenced your career path in the sense that you admired him. Yeah. Um, um, and did you was your mathematics good enough from the sciences to be able to really read the Principia and understand? No way. What, what they were trying to do? No way. I had a very superficial understanding. I mean, especially again, again as a teenager, um, I have a very superficial understanding. I, ve- I went back to it later, and it's you know, as you know, it's it's very heavy going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I w- went back to it as just as a curiosity and said, okay, I want to see how these people actually, what, what these people were writing. Um, um, but by that time, of course, there was also not much of an incentive for a number of reasons. First of all, because I knew that the project was doomed. 
Uh, and second of all, because I've actually, you know, my, my area of, of research or scholarship is really not logic or mathematical logic. But I was curious, so I went back to it. And yeah, it's, it's one of the most difficult. Re- I mean, I, if people tell you that they read the Principia, they probably yeah, love it. Yeah. You There's know, very few people who did. Because the, audience, the Blindheads audience has a lot of very um, intelligent people who like to read things, you know, if you want a glimpse at what Russell was trying to do, but in a much easier form, you actually can read Frege's Foundations of Arithmetic. Yeah, it's, it's much more readable, and in the sense, and you can sort of follow what the, what the project was, and it was essentially. I mean, Russell, I don't want to say got the idea from Frege, but he did sort of get the idea. I mean, Frege yeah. was doing it first, yeah. was trying to was trying to reduce mathematics to logic first, um, and um, that is, it's a more read of the Principia. I, I think you really can't read unless you have advanced knowledge of both logic and mathematics. Yeah. So, is there anything else you wanted to? Talk no, I, in fact, I, I'm looking at my computer and I see that the, the battery's gone down dramatically. So why don't we move toward your... <laughs> Wait, you're on a battery? You're not even plugged in? Yeah, I'm not even back, plugged in at this moment. So yeah, I should have probably. I told uh, you about oh, filming I'll... from the basement of the Port Authority. I told you about that. <laughs> All right, so, so you're a picker for, for the day of a philosopher who influenced you. Right, so I so mine's going to be less per, less personal than yours because... Philosophers didn't influence me as a young as a young person, and didn't influence me in terms of my life. Um, the person I chose is Gilbert Ryle, and wow. what, here's how Ryle influenced me. Ryle influenced me in that I underwent a major shift in my thinking once I was already a philosopher. So I started out, um, and really, I'm not not as an undergraduate, but as a graduate student, I started out very much as a hardcore. Platonist and rationalist. I was very, very influenced by Jerry Katz. I think I've talked to you about this. Yeah. Jerry Katz, um, Gerald J. Katz, um, uh, he and Jerry Fodor were students of Chomsky. And um, uh, Katz was at the Graduate Center when I was uh, a graduate student. And by that time, he had migrated away from the sort of psychologistic view of language that Chomsky embraces um, to a Platonist view of language um, along the lines that Frege advocates. And um, I found Katz both his personality. I actually could have picked Katz. Um, uh, I found Katz's personality very powerful uh, and impressive. I never saw him ever lose an argument to anyone, ever. Huh. And people were afraid of him in terms of debate. I mean, he was that good. Um, and I also just like this picture of philosophy as being dealing with abstracta, that that's, that's its sort of business, is to deal right. with the abstract dimension of reality. Yeah. Um, um, I, I refer now to that one as the Platonist temptation. Right, right. And it is, a, it, and also there's something about that that was tempting to me as a young philosopher, partly because it was countercultural at that time. Yeah. At the, yeah. He was, it, Katz, I think he would have been a pariah had he not been such a powerful man in terms of his personality. Um, it was Wittgenstein and Ryle that broke me of this. It was re- learning about Wittgenstein and Ryle that broke me of it. It really, I didn't get broken of it till I was already a professor. Uh-huh. And it's because of people I met. It wasn't even through work. It wasn't through school. It was through people I met who I was really influenced by. One of them whom I did an earlier dialogue with um, named Ian Ground from the University of Newcastle, um, um, who I met by going to... British Society of Aesthetics meetings. Um, 
and he was he was he's a very heavy Wittgensteinian. And um, if if you if you if you start following that trail, you're going to wind up at Ryle because Wittgenstein and Ryle had a very similar critique uh, 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 of of, uh, of of the way philosophy was being done. And so for me, Ryle is influential, not because he led me to philosophy, not because he right. influenced me as a person, but because he, he was one of a handful of, peop- of thinkers who fundamentally changed the way I think about the subject and how I, the research I did. You, you can find articles of mine that are where I'm arguing for Platonism. Ah, yeah. interesting. Well, maybe we, maybe we should talk about that face uh, <laughs> another time. Yeah, yeah. Because I've had a short Plato's face on my own. Um, but so, did you read? Uh, so, what was it? The concept of mind, which is his most famous. Right. Book. So, so I did prepare for this in the sense that so, so I wouldn't meander around. Um, <laughs> um, and, oh and, come on! It's a discussion among philosophers. I, no, no, no. I, I do, no, I don't mean that you were meandering. I mean that I was worried that I would. I, it would be too hard to just sort of ad lib, so I tried to prepare a little bit. Um, there, there's a hand. There, there's a, there's a number of a short number of things that Ryle did in a handful of pieces uh-huh. that really is what what did it for me. So um, the concept of mind is the book right. that that really that really impressed me. He also has some very interesting essays. He has one of the best essays on Parmenides ever written. Um, he has a really good essay called Jane Austen and the Moralists, which is great. Um, he, he's a very good philosopher. I should just say a moment about him. He's roughly contemporaneous with Russell. Um, but he, Russell was at Cambridge and Ryle was at Oxford. And they were very different types of philosophy being done at Cambridge and Oxford. As a matter of fact, the, the Oxford style of philosophy became known as Oxford philosophy. And it was largely this ordinary language approach to philosophy. So the two most famous people, of course, were J.L. Austin and, um, and uh, 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 Gilbert Ryle were the two most famous proponents of that school of thought. Um, so that's, that's a little background on who, who he was. Um, the, the the things that impressed me about him, the, the aspect of the critique that impressed me and were, were, were several fold. One, he criticized philosophy's tendency to hypostatize its subject matter. That is, to look for objects. So yeah. we're talking about mind. We got to find the thing that's the mind. We're talking yeah. about meaning. We got to find what the meanings are. We got. We're talking about uh, 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 intentions. We have to find out what what things are the intentions. This yeah. tendency of philosophy to to look for objects right, um, that correspond to these ordinary language concepts that we use. Okay, he was he was the one that coined the phrase uh, "ghost in the machine"? Right? Yes, yes, that's, that's the critique of Descartes. So that yeah. one thing is this this. This tendency of philosophy to hypostatize its 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 subjects, um, one of that one of them being looking for the thing that is the mind, right. another being looking for the things that are thoughts, and the third being looking for the things that are meanings. Right, those are the three. Right. Um, the second thing that he that really impressed me about him was his critique of what he called the intellectualist legend, and that is that the way that we explain um, human performances of various kinds, um, whether it's chess playing or whether it's um, uh, engaging in deliberate action, or that we that we explain these things by reference to prior acts of intellection, right? Okay. That is, we model our 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 under, uh, we model our account of human behavior 
um, on the account of cause and effect in the sciences. So in the sciences, if we're looking for uh, looking at, let's say, the behavior of a planet or the behavior of, uh, uh, of, of a cell, um, we look for antecedent causes of that behavior, right? right. Um, and so in what we do when we talk about human action is we look for the antecedent causes of human action. So there's this famous example that Wittgenstein gives when he asks, what's the difference between raising my arm and my arm raising? So I can raise my arm, let's say I'm in a class to ask a question, or my arm can raise, let's say I have a muscle disorder, right? right. So Wittgenstein asks, what's the diff, what's left over, right? What's the difference? And the inclination on the part of mainstream, the mainstream philosophical tradition is to say, ah, the difference is that when I raise my arm, there's a prior act of intending, right? Right. Um, uh, and it's this that Ryle wants to criticize. Say this is a basic mistake. Right? Right. So I can talk. I mean, if you want, I can talk about um, a little bit about what each of these critiques involves. But those are the two things that really impressed me about him and broke my commitment to the sort of tradition I had been working in before. Well, I, I wanted to actually ask you a couple of things actually yeah. um, that uh, going over my own notes about Ryle. Um, about whom, of course, I know much less than you do, so that which is why I'm asking the question. You're, you're giving the answer. Um, so one of the, the ways he puts what he's doing, what he's up to uh, in that book, is that he, he's, he says that um, he doesn't think the philosophy is in the business of uh, sort of augmenting knowledge necessarily, but he uses the term rectify the logical geography of yes. the knowledge that we possess. Yes. I like that idea. I, I very much like that idea. Um, in you know, I've been. Uh, I think I mentioned this before, but I've I've been finishing a book for Chicago Press that hopefully will come out next year on on whether and in what sense philosophy makes progress. And maybe when it comes out, the book I'll send you a copy and we'll do a special. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I like conversation on that yeah. one. But um, but one of the things that I put forth to, uh, in in the book, and really this was not influenced by Ryle because he, he's always been you know he's been there in the background, but it hasn't been one of my major. Um, sources. But, but one of the things that I try to develop in the book is the idea that, you know, philosophy is not in the business, of course, of discovering facts about the world or things about the world. That's, we got science for that. Um, and even though I do think that there is some overlap and some, some, some sort of back and forth between science and philosophy, I largely see the two, uh, the two as distinct. But what I do say is that philosophy for me is about mapping these, these what I call a conceptual landscape or a conceptual territory and then and then refining these these peaks that are that that, that philosophers uh, either discover or, or or invent about certain problems so for instance if you are uh, doing moral philosophy let's say um, you know it's not it's not that you are discovering principles like utilitarianism or deontology or virtue ethics or, so, or something like that what you're doing is you're you're, you're um, you're clarifying, you're, you're playing with these ideas. You are, as Ryle uh, seems, to, seems to say, you know, sort of uh, exploring the geography and rectifying and clarifying the geography of something that we already actually know, we already possess to some extent. Is that, is that yeah, so, so make sense to you? I, actually, I can, I, can, so I, can, I can talk about that in the context specifically of, um, of the question of mind. Okay, so... Yeah. so right. um, What Ryle, what Ryle thinks is that we misunderstand what our actual folk language means and how it works. That is, we, we, we make the mistake of thinking that our 
folk language functions a lot like scientific language does. So I'll give yeah. you an example. So let's say, um, and so in that sense, he sees the role of philosophy as to cl- make clarify, is to clarify. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, and, and to clarify in order that we don't make mistakes and then embark upon rabbit hole type projects. Um, I'm of the view that most cognitive science, as it's currently understood, is a rabbit hole project. Um, And it's a rabbit hole project because of a mistaken analogy that's made between ways that we speak in ordinary language and ways that we think about cause and effect in science. Okay. And so I'll give you you a a good example. So, um, you know, suppose um, I'm trying to, you know, let's say John hits Bill. And I want an explanation of him hitting Bill. And I want an explanation in the sense of I want an explanation of the various motor movements that he engages in. Mm-hmm. And so what I will do is I will look uh, inside Bill, right? I will look at his muscles and at his neurons and at the way they all function. And then I can give a scientific account of the causes of his bodily movements. Um, let's say, however, that I want to understand um, the statement that John uh, hates Bill. Not yeah. hits, but hates him. Okay. Right. Ryle says it's very easy to make the mistake that because hitting Bill is a physical activity, hating Bill must be some mental activity, and that right. will give essentially the same kind of explanation yeah. that we give for the hitting, right, yeah. for the hating, right? right. Um, uh, 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 Ryle talks about this. Um, in ter- he says the following. He says um, the mistake is in thinking that. Um, philosophy and science ask the same kinds of questions just about different stuff. What he wants to say is that, no, these are actually totally different questions. To understand right. why John hates Bill right. is a completely different type of question than asking, why does John hate Bill? It's a different kind of question than asking, why did he hit Bill? Right. So it's interesting you, you put it this way because, so um, as you know, as, you know, we talked about this a number of times. You know, I came to philosophy late in my career, you know, literally seven years ago. This is my seventh year. I've been uh, doing so, it longer than you. <laughs> yeah, as a professional philosopher, you know, so, so and I came in from, from, from science background and biology in particular. And I still remember very clearly um, being very puzzled by the way in which some of my colleagues or even some of my teachers in graduate school, because I did go back and get my PhD in philosophy. I didn't just fake it. Um, and we're talking about certain things. Like, for instance, you know, in the, within the context, and I think this is related, related very closely to what you, you were just saying. Um, so when I took a course in philosophy of mind, right, I, I was exposed to, uh, let's say, the eliminativists, like Patricia and uh, Churchland. Yeah, and, Paul Churchill, um, yeah. Right, and Paul Churchill. And... And so, and so for the first time I heard talk of what, what these people refer to as a folk theory of mind, right? right. Folk, folk, folk psychological theory and all that. And I always thought, this is odd. Folks don't have theories. Right. They don't have, I mean, if by theory you mean anything like a scientific theory, which seems like that, that's what they mean. No, they don't. You know, people don't have, they, they have a, a conception. They think of minds in a certain way. They think of, of, of course, and they talk in a certain way. But it's not a theory. It's not something you can show to be wrong because uh, you're making, to go back to, to uh, Ryle, I think, a category mistake yeah. in yeah. thinking of, of folk so-called theories as theories, as, right. as analogous to scientific theories. In fact, in the book that I referred to a minute ago, the, the one on progress of philosophy, I make an attempt 
to say right at the beginning of the book that, like, that even philosophers themselves should not talk about theories. That is, I, I, don't, I don't think that it makes much sense to talk about a philosophical theory of something. What the, a better word, which some philosophers do use, is an account yeah. or a framework. Yeah, 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 you know, so yeah. philosophy is in the business of giving accounts, as Ryle would say, in sort of explaining the landscape, the, ge right. the geography of the landscape, understanding the landscape, not a theory. If you use the word theory, you know, that pretty much has been hijacked, and I think with very good reasons, by science. Yeah, yeah. So if you, if you talk theory, you're thinking Newton, you're thinking right. Einstein, you're and thinking you're think Darwin. And you're thinking an explanation in the right. causal sense of an explanation, right? And so, and so that's exactly the error that gets made. So suppose I, suppose what I want to understand, suppose I tell you that John hit Bill because he hates him, okay? Right. Um, the, the mistake Ryle wants to, wants to point out is in thinking that, in saying that, I'm saying the same kind of thing as when I say the neurons firing in John's head caused his arm to move, okay? Right. Um, um, and the reason why we make that mistake is because we think that just as corresponding to um, the physical action where there is um, some, some physical process, that corresponding to the mental action word, there must be some corresponding mental process, right? right? And then we go down the rabbit hole. We start looking for where the hating is in John's mind or in his brain. Interestingly, both the Cartesian and the physicalist make the same mistake, Okay, right. they're right. both looking for causes and effects in the mind, just like the scientist looks for causes and effects in the world, because they think that we're asking the same kind of question. But right. really, when I say that John hit Bill because he hates him, what I'm doing is saying that John's behavior is interpretable in a certain way within a certain kind of social framework that has You're all sorts of an account. That's right. That, that has a normative dimension. Yep. It's tied in with its being wrong. That has all sorts of various other uh, legal and other implications, right? Um, it's part of a whole network of social uh, concepts. But what I find it isn't. Myself very much surprising, surprised, surprised and agreeing with you on this because so this makes sense of what I was saying earlier yeah. that you know, when I when I heard the Churchlands and I have a you know a lot of respect for for for, for them. I met uh, Patricia uh, many many years later, and she's a delightful person. But nonetheless. When I when I hear or or, or, or read them and say things like uh, we're going to eliminate the folk theory of let's say hatreds right, right. and replace it with neurological talk, I want to say what are you talking about? Uh, those are apples and oranges. They don't they don't have anything to do with each other. Uh, to say that you know uh, I forgot the names that use uh, John and whatever. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, John and Bill. <laughs> John and Bill. Uh, yeah. <laughs> When you say that John hates Bill, and that's a that's an explanation or an account for for certain kinds of behaviors and certain states of mind and all that, you know, if you imagine what would happen if you say, well, no, it's not scientifically correct to say that John hates Bill. What you should say is that John's neurons one, two, three, four, twenty five hundred, right, two hundred twenty five, uh, fired in this particular way, which et cetera, et cetera. It's like right. first of all. Right. It's it would be incredibly cumbersome, but that's not even the problem. Right, that's not the, the problem. problem. Is it's just not going to be useful. Right, and look, I mean, here, I mean, you're, you're really getting right right to the heart of what's really important about this, and that is when we give an explanation like he did it because he hated him, we give that explanation typically when the behavior we're trying to explain is under an intentional description. Right. So, um, I I would say 
why did John assault Bill, right? Or why did John um, uh, uh, commit an act, uh, commit an uh, commit an egregious act against Bill, or whatever? In other words, or a moral description, or something like that. We don't invoke mental causes to explain in, in folk language to explain motor movement. We mm-hmm. invoke mental causes to explain behavior under an intentional description. And okay. so, but because of the way that the sentences look, the way that the sort of subject and predicates go and all of that, we can easily make the mistake in thinking that we're asking the same question as we asked when we're asking for an explanation of his motor movements. And that's the, that's the fundamental mistake that we make. It's what gives us... Um, theories of the mind, um, um, uh, uh, whether they're dualistic or whether they're physicalistic. It's what gives us folk psychological explanations a la Fodor, which is supposed to be just like explanations in physics, except that it's mental things causing behavioral things. Um, And all of that, Ryle wants to say, is a mistake. Misunderstands what the folk language means and what it is we're looking for when we ask questions like, why was John so mean to Bill, right? So, so would you mind commenting then a little more broadly on the, on the idea, on Ryle's idea of a category mistake? Because that actually has gone now, then, then eventually is going to apply to a much broader uh, yes. set of problems than yes. originally had in mind. Yes. I, mean, I actually just think I saw a, a new book that came out, a collection of essays on uh, the, the idea of category mistake. But, but um, so what is exactly a category mistake and, and what, what else can we do with it? So most generically, a category mistake is mistaking a concept as belonging to one type as opposed to another. So here's the example that Ryle gives in the concept of mind. He says, imagine someone taking a tour of a university, right? And he's shown the athletic building, He's shown the dormitory, he's shown the lecture hall, and then at the end of the tour he says, yeah, but yet where's the university, right? Right. You haven't shown me the university. And it then has to be explained to him that the university doesn't, the word university doesn't refer to another discrete object, it refers to the relationship between all the objects he's seen as well as the relationship between the various activities that people engage in in the objects. In other words, university, despite the fact that it's a noun, (laughs) Right. Isn't the same kind of word as the lecture hall, as lecture hall, right? Or dining hall, okay? One word refers to a discrete object, one word doesn't. Um, one word refers to a set of relations, okay? Um, and he uses that as an example to show that just because we have a mentalistic vocabulary, that doesn't mean that it, that it refers to mental objects, Whether you conceive them dualistically or physicalistically, that's the key thing. People mistakenly say that Ryle is a behaviorist. He's not. Yeah, that's right. I remember (laughs) reading it actually, uh, I think in in the book he says that, uh, uh, oh, this book will very likely be taken as a behaviorist uh, attempt, but it's not. And And people still say it anyway, right? It's just drive you could drive you insane, right? Um, um, So that's the sort of the bare bones of what he gives as a category mistake. So he thinks that, the very idea of saying that there are mental objects that are causally responsible for behavioral effects mm-hmm. is the same, the same kind of category as thinking that because um, dining hall refers to a building, then university must also refer to some discrete object. Okay. So that's the basic idea of a category error. Um, but category errors can occur 
in all sorts. In other words, you can mistake all kinds of concepts for each other, right? Um, one, one, the other, the other really thing that really influences me also involves a kind of category error, and that's what he calls the relationship between knowing how and knowing that. Right. right, of course. Right. He's famous for that as well. Right. right. So, so um, why don't you tell us about that a little bit? Right. And so this is related in the following. Uh, this is related to what we've been talking about. So um, we have. it's very common for us to think that um, in order to explain various types of performances, performances that are always under some sort of intentional description. So either uh, we describe, if we describe a performance as intelligently executed, or we, or we perform, uh, we describe a performance as uh, being done freely, or any, that what explains those competent performances is some prior act of intellection, right? Some prior act of reasoning, okay? Um, and 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 so he just he makes this decision. He says he says we know how to engage in various performances, and we explain how we know how in terms of the things that we know. Right. So yeah. I can be a competent chess player because I know the rules of chess. I can be a competent chef because I know the recipes. I can you know, right. And so the idea is that we entertain a bunch of thoughts and ideas, and then these cause our performances to be describable as intelligent or witty or well done or, or whatever. And what he wants to show is that this is a basic mistake. Uh, and it's a basic mistake because, uh, for a very, very simple reason, um, it can't be the case that all perform competent performances are preceded by acts of intellection because acts of intellection are themselves performances. <laughs> Uh -huh. right. Right. One can think well and think poorly. Yeah. One can reason well and reason one, re can, one can reason poorly. So what Ryle argues is that what this shows is that knowing how is actually prior to knowing that. What uh -huh. rules and instructions and recipes do is describe competent performances. They don't precede competent performances, right? And so this whole picture of, and if you think about it, it also is a very Cartesian sort of picture, the idea that the thinking happens first and the acting happens after. Right. But this ignores the fact that the thinking is also a kind of acting, right? That we have to, you know, right. we, to, to learn rules is itself something that can be done well or poorly, right? right. Um, and so you would then so need another prior active intellection to explain that. It's basically your infinite regress argument is that sure. he makes. Yeah. But, but wouldn't, so my, my, my reaction to that would be, but isn't actually an interaction between the two, right? I mean, so, sort of, you know, let's take the, the case of, of competence, even in something that is clearly physical more than mental, like, you know, yeah, playing yeah. soccer, for yeah, instance. Yeah. You know, so, so when I was a kid, I started, you know, I, uh, like every Italian kid, started playing, playing, playing soccer. Now, um, forget for a minute that, of course, somebody had to explain to me the basic rules, which isn't sort of an intellectual act, if you like. But, but you know, you just... But did, they have, did they have to... Could you well, not? You know, could you not have simply things. started playing with them and observed what they did? Yeah, but immediately you make an ob obvious mistakes, like you know, for instance, uh, you know, you don't you don't know that the, the ball right. is going that direction. But you'd find out it would be corrected in a piecemeal fashion, right? You could, you yeah. could. Um, 
but the fact is, so if you want to then proceed beyond a certain level, what happens is that, you know, if you're, let's say, playing, instead of just playing with friends, you're playing with a coach, you're playing with, you know, at a, even at a non-professional level. Well, then, then well, the, what the coach will tell you is, well, actually, you know, you made a mistake here, you did, you know, instead of going this way, you should have gone that way, because that's so in terms of the strategy of the team and so on and so forth. Now, that, that to me seems, a, a, you know, obviously a sort of an a question of intellectual explanation, which however better translate in a skill, uh, you know, the next time that I play, otherwise, you know, uh, it's not, it's not particularly useful and vice versa. Of course, I have to be able, the, the, the coach has to be able to, uh, vocalize, right. verbalize to me certain things, which he probably also learned just by experience by actually playing himself. You know, most coaches are former players anyway. Right. Right. So just even based on that particular, on that simple example, I would think that, that two, no matter how you get them started, I mean, I can even agree that most of the times, if not even all the times, you get started with a sort of a practice, with, a, with an actual physical action. But, but at some point, they become sort of so intermeshed, so, so, so inextricably interconnected that it really makes no sense to me to right. sort of separate them and right. say, ah, yes. this is what you're going to do now. Well, but I don't, look, I, he certainly agrees with that. And nowhere in the article does he suggest that instructions and rules don't play any sort of role yeah. in, in, in developing the capacity for competent performances. Right. But he is reacting to a tradition in philosophy that very strongly says that active intellection always, not only temporally, but conceptually precede competent performances. Um, this is sort of, and this is traditional philosophy's rationalism with a small R, right? Um, and, a, he shows that, that, and, right. I, and he, A, he shows that that can't be the case, right? right. Um, because look, the rules of soccer could only be drawn up once there was soccer. They couldn't have, in other words, soccer emerged as a set of practices that then a set of rules were drawn up that describe what people agreed upon, where, 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 the, where they accepted practice. And notice it can evolve over time. They can change, right? That's right, and they did. Uh, right. And, right. Um, and so Ryle, Ryle is not making um, – he's not denying the role of, 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 of intellection. He's not denying the role of uh, – the role that – I'm sorry. Yes, because right. somebody must have come home. Um, the role that knowing that plays. Um, uh, uh, what he's denying is the alleged role that philosophy traditionally has said it plays. Right. right? Um, and look, I would also say you know, it's a very uh, – cooking and recipes is a very good example of this also. Right. Yeah. Um, obviously, the recipes describe successful uh, cooking performances. They can't precede right successful cooking performances. And you also will notice they don't provide a very good basis for learning how to be a great cook. No one became a great chef just by following recipes. Right. There's yeah. a real limit. I think he went at one point. Ryle describes rules as like banisters for toddlers. Right. <laughs> they do help you walk, but they're not what make you walk really well. What makes you walk really well is an awful lot of practice, right? Um, I mean, again, that, that I think that's definitely the case for for uh, you know for recipes. I mean, I, I I like to cook myself, and I can certainly sympathize with that approach. But I also like to play chess, let's say. Mm -hmm. And somebody had to explain to me at least the basic rules before yeah. I played the first game, right? Yeah. So then after that, it did become again it, these these. Back and forth, total interaction, back and forth between yeah. the two, right? Yeah. But at the beginning, somebody had to tell me, "Look, no, you don't, you cannot move the 
the queen right. that way, or you know, you can't you can't do this or that. So yeah, I think the two are are, are definitely interesting. But it's it's an interesting point when you made a minute ago about what philosophers say uh, about certain things really do need to be understood within the context of what they're reacting against, yes. which is why I think the history of philosophy is crucial in philosophy mm-hmm. much more than, let's say, the history of science is crucial in science. Yeah, you're right. I do think that scientists themselves could benefit from learning a little bit of history of their field. Um, but I think it is, in fact, much less crucial. There's just no doing philosophy, I think, unless you actually learn quite a bit about the history of your field, even going back thousands of years. I mean, you know, yeah. the, uh, my, 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 my blog is, you know, it's, it's, it's called Plato's footnote because, because of this, uh, quote by Whitehead, by Whitehead. Yeah. Uh, that said that, uh, an argument can be made that much of Western philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato. Now, of course he didn't mean that literally. There's a hell of a lot of stuff that Plato, uh, that, that we rejected about Plato. There's a lot of stuff that Plato would not have even thought about, about writing. But the idea is that he did in fact set the agenda for a lot of the stuff that yeah. has been talking about for the following, you know, two, two millennia. And so that if you don't, in fact, read Plato, you just don't make sense of why certain things are problems or so why, why people are talking. A certain or you way. misunderstand what the problems, you misconceive the problems because the problems have, have been, you know, there, there's a narrative, uh, right, right. In, in which these problems have been discussed. And that's why, you know, um, um, in your former... Uh, you know, I asked you if I should mention this, but now it's coming up naturally. Oh, go ahead. So, so Scientia Salon, which is the webzine that you've been working on up and uh, but you, which you recently um, uh, have closed, are going to close. And uh, if people are who are following the webzine are interested, they should probably go over there and read your statement about why you're closing it. Um, but I always used to, you know, tell people you need to read this, this, and this because right. you're talking about something. And you're really misconstruing it because you're not you, you don't know the story up until now. And right. people would get very angry at me for telling them to do this. And it's not because I think they don't want to read. It's because I think they fundamentally think that f- there were so many science types on that blog, on that right. website. So they again, didn't understand how important the narrative was in philosophy. Right. That's right. But again, I think this goes back to the point that we were making earlier, that philosophy is a different kind of activity from yes. science. And it's not in the business of producing theories about the world. It is in the business of producing understanding and accounts, which means that you need to know the history of how people have talked and, and, and thought about certain things. Otherwise, you don't understand what they're saying now. This is not the case for science. I mean, I remember when I, when I was uh, teaching um, you know, intro uh, biology and, and intro uh, ecology or, or uh, courses in the sciences, one of the discussions there has always been, well, should we teach genetics, let's say, in the historical, with the historical progression, you know, you start with Mendel and then the discovery of DNA and then you get to modern molecular biology. Or shall we start with modern molecular biology, bacterial molecular biology, which is the, what is, people are doing now. And then, you know, eventually refer to other things if they, if they need be. And my instinct was always, no, no, you should do the history because the history of ideas is important. But I can see that you can teach an entire course on genetics without ever mentioning Mendel. Right. And you're not missing much. Yes, you're missing the history. But if you want to understand how, you know, what geneticists are doing today, what molecular biology is about and all that sort of stuff, you don't need anything that is older than, you know, 10 or 15 years, right. pretty much. Um, in philosophy, that would simply not be possible. It just does not work that way. Yeah. 
Uh, it's a very different kind of activity. Look, uh, my friend, I think we're You're about- dying. Your, your battery's dying. Yeah. And <laughs> talked for more than an hour and 15 Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. I like this. But I, I wanted to ask you another question. So yeah. this may be a misunderstanding on my part, but I have heard people in, uh, uh, writing, I mean, uh, saying, and then and, and I read about this, this idea that Ryle tended to have a fairly uh, limited or, or, or narrow conception of what actually is the proper business of philosophy, which is that it doesn't extend beyond philosophy of mind, logic, and language, basically. That leaves out a lot of stuff. Like, Yeah. I don't think that that's true. I mean, look, like I said, if you look at his collected papers, I mean, I have two volumes of his collected papers. um, So this is all the stuff that's not in the concept of mind. Um, He wrote on everything, uh, even uh, extending as far as to literature Um, um, uh, and, and the moral effect of literature. Um, but because Ryle saw the business of philosophy as primarily about clarifying errors that we make because of our misunderstanding of the uses and functions of our folk language, our ordinary language, I think what he probably thought that we make the biggest mistakes that lead us down the worst kinds of rabbit holes in these areas, right? And, and, I think he's been right. I mean, I, th- I think of all the areas in which this has been most egregious has been in the ph- has been in the philosophy of mind, cognitive science crossover. If he was alive today, I think he'd be saying, "I told you so." Um, <laughs> and I mean, you know, this has big consequences. I mean, we have whole institutions devoted to doing this. We spend a lot of money doing this stuff, and if the whole thing is based on a basic category error. Um, that's something I want to know, right? Is it, is it an ironic, then, from that perspective, that Dan Dennett, of all people, is a former student of, of Ryle? Well, but I think that in that sense, Dan, you know, A, I think it's, like Wittgenstein, it's very easy to misunderstand Ryle. The, crit- yeah. the, the critique is subtle. Um, right. And also, the other part of it is, and this Wittgenstein says more clearly than Ryle, these mistakes don't just arise when we do philosophy. They come out of our ordinary thinking. In other words, they're very easy mistakes to make, right? Um, I'll give you an analogy. Um, look, the world isn't really three-dimensional, right? Uh-huh. But my God, we can't but perceive it that way, right? And, and yeah. so it's very easy to make a lot of mistakes in our basic folk, folk physics, if you want to call it, yeah, because right. we can't almost can't help but see things a certain way, and if you now think not about perception but about language, um, you could see how these mistakes are very easy to make, even for very smart people. Jerry Fodor is a very smart person, and a yeah. lot, he's much smarter than I am in a, in, in a great sense. He was one of my professors. He was at the Graduate Center too when I was a student there. Right. Um, yeah, I occasionally still see him here. He, about this, it is completely wrong. And by the way, Fodor taught me that Ra was a behaviorist. Ah, well, not surprising. So, so I think that, that the critique is very easy to misunderstand because it's very subtle. And I also think that the nature of the mistake that, that Ryle and Wittgenstein describe is a one that's very easy to make. And that's the reason why even very smart people do it. Seems like that's a good <laughs> to end, don't you think? Yeah, I just hope I don't like get like challenges to like duels by, by anybody over <laughs> Jerry Ford sends me an email. Oh, you think you're smarter than me. Um, Massimo, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. This was fun as usual. And good luck uh, uh, as your semester gets underway. I hope you're, I hope you it's too. going well and yeah. uh, I'll see you soon. Absolutely. All right. Thanks Massimo. All right. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.